you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. For those of you who are looking for a passage out of Acts, psych. Looking, I haven't used that word in a long time. Philippians chapter one. From Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. I always pray with joy in my every prayer for, you, for all of you because of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am sure of this very thing, that the one who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is right for me to think about uh, think this about all of you, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and con- confirmation of the gospel, all of you became partners in God's grace together with me. For God is my witness that I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus, and I pray this, that your love may abound even more and more in knowledge and every kind of insight, so that you can decide what is best, and thus be sincere and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is God's word, and you may be seated. All right. Well, it's always funny, you guys. Like, there's like this big empty hole right here, and that ro- that whole section's full. Just funny. <laughs> um. Well, yeah. As as you could see, we are not in the Book of Acts tonight. We're looking at Philippians. And there's a reason for that. Tonight we're adding sort of a new element to our study through the book of Acts. We're adding this this new piece as we continue through the stories of Paul's missionary journeys. For the last several weeks, we've been looking really at Acts 16. We've been looking at Paul's uh, missionary journey and how it brought him to Philippi. And the church that was planted through all of that. And several weeks ago, Nikolai and I were talking about the rest of the book of Acts. And it probably was me like, are we going to extend this? How long are we going to go into this? Is this going to take all of 2024 too? No, it's not actually. But um, just trying to think through how the rest of the story plays out. And I think Nikolai mentioned, let's, let's actually slow it down a little bit. What we're going to do is, is from now on out, here on out, as Paul or the narrative comes to a city where Paul wrote a letter. So we just covered Philippi. Paul wrote a letter to Philippi. Sometime later, but he, he wrote a letter to this church that we just spent now a couple weeks looking at the formation and the planting of this church. And years later, we have the like luxury of seeing how the Apostle Paul was still praying for that church that was planted. And so it's going to come up, I mean, next week, we're, next couple weeks, there's the other cities. I mean, Paul goes to Berea. He doesn't write a letter to the Bereans that we have today. I mean, it's possible he did, but it's not in the Scripture. Then he comes to Thessalonica, and we'll take a second. We'll look at the letters of of Thessalonians. Does that make sense? So we'll insert sort of an overview, bird's-eye picture of the heart behind the letter as the apostles addressing the churches that we see him come to through the narrative. So we're still going to be going through the book of Acts, but we're going to insert these letters as we go. Is that okay? And as I was prepping this week, thinking through how do I introduce 
the book of Philippians. How do I cover this? It's a short book. It was meant to be read in public. Be honest. We're going to read quite a bit of it tonight. <laughs> um, so let's jump in. In Acts 16, as we've been looking the last several weeks, we looked at how our little bunch of missionaries, right? Paul, Silas, Timothy, we assume Luke, they make their way to the city of Philippi. They make their way to this Roman province. They received a vision from the Lord to go to Macedonia. Remember they saw the Macedonian man in the vision? So they receive this vision, and they begin to travel, and they make their way to what is now northeastern Greece, the city of Philippi. And they begin to plant this church. Philippi, we looked at this now a few weeks, but Philippi was a Roman colony. It was a Roman province founded by Philip of Macedon. That's the father of Alexander the Great. There's, there's a lot of history here. Fourth century B.C., this, was, this was, city was started. He named it after himself because that's what you do when your son is Alexander the Great. You name cities after yourself. It's what makes sense to me. <clears throat> he expanded and enlarged the city. There was gold mining there. It came under Roman uh, dominion in 168 B.C. It was enlarged in 42 B.C., when Anthony and Octavia defeated Brutus and Cassius. How many of you guys are Roman history buffs? Anybody? Is it just me and Elijah like to talk about this stuff? Forty-two BC. In thirty-one BC, Octavian granted the city the state of a colony, gave it access and, and the privileges of a Roman colony. What that allowed is Roman influence was deep. Roman, it was known, the city of Philippi was known as a place of retirement for retired Roman soldiers. It was called the Little Rome. The Roman influence in this city was deep, and it was overwhelming to the context of the city. It's really important to the way uh, Paul writes this letter. And in Acts 16, we looked at three unique stories of people who Paul comes into contact with and, and come to the saving knowledge of Jesus. Three unique people, three changed lives that resulted in the planting and the formation of the first church in Europe. The church that was planted in Philippi begins the mission of God into Europe. So we looked at three stories. You guys remember Lydia, the wealthy woman. We looked at the demon-possessed slave girl. And we looked at the Roman ex-military jailer. Three unique stories. We're not going to go back through those stories tonight. You can read Acts 16 or look up on the podcast. They will be there. But for sure, those stories are important as you read the book of Philippians. Those backdrop, they create the backdrop for what's going to happen. And the characters, the, the makeup of those three stories, create a really important backdrop for how you to understand this infant Christian community. What we know from these three stories is there's this practice of fortune-telling. There's this demon-possessed girl. There was profiteering off of, off of this little girl. We know that there was an intolerance shown towards the Jewish community, towards their monotheistic ideas. We know from Acts 16 that there was a longing and a question about salvation that came, came up. We know from the stories in Acts 16 that the prevailing tendencies of the people in this city were very Roman. There was an intense 
loyalty to the Roman ethos. We know that both in the way that they, they came against Paul and, his, and, the, and, and Paul and Silas because they were preaching something contrary to what, they, what they was lawful for them to believe, but then also for the way they respond when Paul says, I'm a Roman citizen. They're terrified. They're scared when Paul pulls out his citizenship card and says, oh, by the way, you falsely imprisoned a Roman citizen. This is a retirement community for ex-Roman military. Very Roman patriotic. That lies as the backdrop. It sits as the backdrop for all that the Lord is going to do in this city and in the letter that Paul's going to write to the city. It's in this sort of an atmosphere, in what Paul in the book of Philippians says, in a crooked and depraved generation. As Paul's putting his finger on what, how do you explain the generation in the culture in Philippi? Crooked and depraved. It was in that context that a church is planted. And that situation, the circumstances around that planting in that church forever left a mark on the Apostle Paul. He was forever marked by the planting of this church. It was always on his mind. His letter that we're going to look at tonight, it looks back to those first days. It looks back to that work that God began. The time when he first visits, for sure, as he's penning this letter from a Roman prison cell, he has those three people in his mind. At least that's the way I, I like to think of this. For sure, in my mind, he has Lydia, Roman jailer, and this demon-possessed slave girl on his mind. We don't know, actually. That's just me thinking. Since Paul had been there, the church has continued and has grown and the church has developed. Years had gone. Paul looks back in the book of Philippians. He calls this church the joy, his joy and his crown. He boasts of them to other churches. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, multiple times, he says, look at that church. Look at them. Look at the... Well, he calls them the Macedonians, but look at them. I think it's important, the backdrop and the context here. Like, Philippi is not all that different than one of our cities. It's not all that different than our context. Not all that different than Santa Rosa. Paul describes it, like I said, as a, as a crooked and depraved, or crooked and perverted generation. It's this sort of mix of quasi-spiritualism, sort of. They'll, they'll use the spirituality and manipulate it for their own gain. But ultimately, the goal is to make themselves look good and feel good and have more money and power and prestige. And yet an intolerance of anything outside of their perceived norm their cultural norm, and yet also this mix of nationalism and politics that just drives everything. That's the context that this church is growing in. And some years later, Paul remembers them in his prayers. Paul thinks about this church, only joy. As Paul thinks about this church where he was beaten and put in stocks, thrown in prison, accused falsely, only joy. We looked at this last week, right? Paul, how is he singing and praying in prison? It's years later, maybe 10, 11 years later, Paul's thinking about this church, joy. Joy is by far the 
the theme that runs through this letter. Every other letter Paul pens has some form of a rebuke. Some correction of doctrine, some correction of activity. The most we get in this book is there's two ladies that seem to be in an argument. And he's like, guys, come on ladies, work this out. That's the most you get in this book. It's all, it's all joy. We're going to look at a few passages tonight. I'm going to try to go through this a little quick. If you have your Bibles, keep them open to Philippians. We're going to look at several passages. My goal tonight is to see if we can draw out some meaning for us today. Some application for us today. Philippians 1, 1 through 11. Nikolai just read this. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, to the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we just pass through these introductions, but in all likelihood, Paul wrote this letter thinking of close friends. Close friends, Christians that are in Philippi. He's writing this possibly, most likely, from Roman jail, from, from house arrest in Rome, quite possibly. He's chained to a Roman jailer. He's waiting his court appearance before Caesar. And he's writing to the church of Philippi that he had planted some decade earlier. And he addresses this letter to three groups. This is important. Three unique groups here. It's, it's to the saints of Christ Jesus. That's us. The saints of Christ Jesus. The holy ones. Those who are in Christ Jesus and have been made holy in his name. And also to the overseers. The general word for leaders, leadership responsibility, and to the deacons, specifically those with a recognized position of service. This letter is, is to the whole church, not just to the elders or the deacons. It's written to everyone. And Paul says in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Is there anybody that you can think of that every time you think of them, only joy and only thanksgiving? That's Paul's remembrance. That's how he remembers this church. Only joy, only thanksgiving. Always, in every prayer of mine, for you uh, all making prayer, my prayer with joy, when Paul thought of them, when he would remember this church, he would thank God, and it would bring him joy. You might say, Paul prayed for the Philippians. He, he becomes happy when he does. This is the first thing Paul says about his own feelings in regards to this church and its joy. This is important. Remember, Paul's writing this as one of the prison epistles. He's writing this while in prison. And his emotional state, joy, thanksgiving. One of the commentators said this. It's a glorious revelation of how the life of fellowship with Christ triumphs over all adverse circumstances. It triumphs, moreover, not just in stoic indifference. It is rather the recognition of the fact that all apparently adverse conditions are made allies to the soul and ministers to victory when brought under the dominion of our Lord. This is, one commentator said, this is Paul's great 
singing epistle. Remember what Paul and Silas were doing in the prison? They were praying and singing hymns. He was singing hymns at midnight. And now again, Paul in prison is singing, it seems. The structure of this letter, even the, structurally the way it's written, opens with a prayer, it closes with a prayer, and right in the middle of this letter is what scholars call the Christ hymn. It's actually a debated thing, like this Christ hymn that sits in the middle, it, it's, it's chapter 2. Some people are like, was this even Paul? Is he quoting a hymn? What's going on here? It's confusing to the scholars because it's, it's a song. It's a hymn right in the middle of this letter. Then he goes back to prayer. So here we have Paul again in prison, praying and singing hymns. This time, no supernatural liberation, no earthquake from heaven that breaks him out. He's awaiting what he thinks is death row, and he's still singing and praying. Nothing changes for this guy. The Lord had to, it seems, the Lord had to put him there because he would pen Ephesians, Philippians, we get the, the prison epistles because he was there. Verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He's remembering those first days when this infant church joined with Paul in fellowship and partnered with him for the gospel. Verse 6, I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He is sure that that work that he saw God begin with those three individuals and their households, that work of that planting of the church, the beginning of the mission into Europe, God would complete it. He would bring it to its fullness. God finishes what he starts. How many of you always finish everything you start? How many of you guys have books that are half written, half read? Who has a book half written? <laughs> Projects. I had a Jeep sitting in front of my house for years. Eventually I'd get to it and I'd finish it. I sold it. I finished it. God's not like us. He finishes what he starts. Paul says he is confident in God's Finishing, that he is going to finish the work that he began in the planting of this church. Can you sense Paul's affection for this church? Can you sense his love for this church? Listen to how he prays for them, jumping down to verse 9. Remember their stories. Remember this foundation, this, this diverse foundation, this supernatural foundation that, that began this church, and then remember that as Paul prays here. And all my prayers, it is my prayer that you, that your love may abound more and more, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may be so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless in the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God there had to be a lot of love within this church 
You have a very diverse population that is at its epicenter. Culturally, socioeconomic, it's all different. There had to be something that bound them together. Yet Paul didn't hesitate to pray for more. He didn't hesitate to pray that their love would abound still more and more. The idea is this, one of the commentators says, that it may be like a river perpetually fed with rain and fresh streams, that it continues to swell and increase until it fills its banks and floods the adjacent plains, that your love would be like that river, forever growing and increasing until it overflows outside of the banks. They had love, yet Paul prayed for more. But not just arbitrary love, not blind love. Paul says, love with knowledge and all discernment. Paul wanted them to have a love that, that could approve of things that are excellent. Look, Paul, Paul deals with blind love when he talks to the Corinthian church. But in this case, he's asking for love that has all knowledge and discernment. The Corinthian church had love, but that love that allowed for crazy things. Adultery and incest. They overlooked things that should not have been overlooked. This kind of love that Paul prayed for was a love with knowledge and discernment that could approve things that are excellent. It's not a love that allow. It's not love when it allows somebody to continue in sin. That's not love. It's not love to allow somebody to continue in a lie or to continue to just be open to everything. The type of love that Paul's praying for is a love of discernment, a love of knowledge, and that you'd be filled with the fruits of righteousness. Filled with the fruits of righteousness. That only comes from abiding in Jesus. That's Paul's prayer for them. Then this letter, he takes a second to address his situation. It must have been a little confusing to the Philippian church. God showed up in an earthquake and set Paul free while he was with us. And yet now, a decade later, Paul's in prison again. I don't know if you knew that, that Paul, the guy who wrote most of our, he, he spent quite a bit of time in prison, actually. Must have been somewhat confusing to them that, that Paul is now in prison. God showed up and with a miracle and set you free here, and yet now you're in prison. You could see how that'd be kind of confusing, right? So he begins and he explains his situation. Just kind of bird's eye picture of what's going on in the book of Philippians here. He explains what's going on, that that God is using his imprisonment. That his imprisonment has actually helped to continue the spread of the gospel. Little did Paul know, I mean maybe he knew, but Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. We have all of that because Paul was in prison. The spread of the gospel 
went beyond the prison guard that he was concerned with to all of us. We have the book that I'm talking about tonight because Paul was imprisoned. But Paul says he's confident in God. He's not ashamed of the gospel that leads him to chains. And they shouldn't be ashamed of him either. He says in verse 21, it's a famous verse, famous saying of Paul. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is of the Messiah. I'll do what the Messiah needs. To die is gain. For if, verse 22, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I, sh- yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell, he says. To live is Christ, to die is gain. He, he's okay either way. He's settled with what happens next. That brings us to his song. This centerpiece, this ancient hymn. Look at chapter 2. Philippians 2. I'm going to start in verse 1, set the stage. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection in symphony, sym- yes, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord in one mind. It's a very diverse church. Same mind, same love, full accord, one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and having been found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That ancient hymn, that is the gospel That is the predecessor to the creed that we recite every Sunday. Which is so amazing, by the way, to hear the kids. Do you guys hear the kids reciting that creed? Remembering and reminding ourselves every Sunday of the truth of the gospel, the the great narrative of Scripture. The Christ hymn. It's worth memorizing. Let's keep reading. Verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only In my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. 
that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Can you sense Paul's affection and his prayer for this church? Those three stories that we looked at the past few weeks? Do all things without grumbling and disputing. I know you're an ex-Roman soldier and a wealthy Asian woman. I know there's a slave girl. I know you don't all agree on all things, but do all things without grumbling and disputing. That you may shine like lights in the world. That there is something marked different about your community. There is something that stands out like a light in darkness by this community of Jesus followers. Jump down to verse 1 of chapter 3. Like I said, we're going to plow through this book. Philippians 3.1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Paul's in prison. Possibly death row for the sake of the gospel. Rejoice in the Lord. Find joy in what God is doing. Find joy in what God has done. Find joy in your fellowship. Find joy in the work that's happening amongst you. Not grumbling and disputes. Joy. Thanksgiving. He says rejoice over and over again throughout this epistle. The entire thing is full joy. Jump down to verse 7. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever gain he had, he counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. How does Paul do this? How does the church in Philippi do this? How do you and I do this? How do we Count it all as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. How do we sit in the culture and the climate that we do, right? A depraved culture. How do we sit in the situation and the city that you do and count it all as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus? What do you actually do to develop that kind of joy in the midst of circumstances? Situations, trials, conflicts, arguments. How can we do this? Jump down to verse 12. Not that I have obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I love how Paul always goes back to Jesus. <laughs> I press on because to make Jesus my own, because he first made me his own. He initiated this thing. Jesus initiated it. So I press on to make him my own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, 
One thing Paul does, forgetting which lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul's mindset, his ambition, his vision transcends the current situation. He sees beyond the current conflict, the current jail cell, all of that, and he's looking way beyond that. His perspective is eternal. Verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me. There's the call. Join in imitating me and keeping your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. This is discipleship. This is what it looks like to follow and practice the way of Jesus. Join in imitating me, Paul says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their bellies. Their glory is their shame with minds set on earthly things. Don't follow that way where your God is your own pleasure, your belly, making, your, making yourself feel good, where your aim is your own glory, your own power, your own ambition, with your mind set on earthly things. Paul's saying, set your eyes on things that are eternal. Verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. Remember the context of a Roman colony, ex-retired Roman officials. Your citizenship is in heaven. I know you used to prize that Roman citizenship that gave you power and prestige. But the reality is your citizenship is of a kingdom that's not of this earth. That's not of this world. Your citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Christ Jesus who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, Paul says, stand firm. Stand firm in the Lord. And how does he close all this out? writing to this church that he clearly loves, that every time he thinks of them, joy wells to the surface. What words does he give them? Look at chapter 4, starting in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. There it is again. Rejoice in the Lord always again. I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Hey, church, refuge, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. God is near, so be reasonable. You should look different. You should look as a person of reason. In a world of unreasonableness, in a world of chaos and anger, in a world of, of uh, deceit, what marks you as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus? Clearly from this epistle, joy and reasonableness. Put them on like clothing, reasonableness. Verse 6, ouch, do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. 
Last week I said, I said that uh, cynicism is the water we swim in in our culture. Anxiety is also the water we swim in. We're an anxious people. Worked up to a frenzy. And our apps and your news feed, it all just feeds that anxiety. It feeds on making you feel anxious and worked up. Making you fight with each other. Causing division and strife. This is a command, not an opinion. Undue care is an intrusion into an arena, into an area that belongs to God alone. When we give undue care to circumstances and situations, we're offering to something else an area that belongs only to God. Anxiety makes us the, this is a way of putting it, it makes us the father of the household. Dads, you, you feel the pressure of caring and providing for your house? May we call that anxiety? <laughs> that pressure that you feel, when we, when we give way to anxiety, it's, it's saying that I have responsibility. I have power. I have to make something happen. I have to provide. But you're taking the place of God the Father who is good and he's the Father and he likes to care and provide and take good care of you. Number one command in scripture, do not be anxious. Disciple of Jesus, we need to take our anxiety captive. And in its place, Paul says, prayer, supplication, that's petitioning, thanksgiving. Paul says, let your requests be known. Let your requests be known. Paul wrote that everything is the proper subject of prayer. Everything is the proper subject of prayer. There's not some areas of your lives that God is somehow not concerned about. The things that keep you up at night, the things that cause your anxiety, God cares about those things. He's more concerned than you are. And many of our prayers go unanswered simply because we don't pray them. Many of our prayers go answered because we don't actually ask God for anything. And here, I think God is inviting us this simple thing. Let your requests be known. Let your requests be known. God wants to know. And this is the, it invites us into the great theological problem. God already knows what you need before you can even ask. He already knows. And yet somehow, this is a mystery, he waits for participation. He longs for participation with you. And so he waits for you to ask. This is how prayer works. Ultimately, God is more interested in a relationship with you than just meeting all your needs and desires. And so he is longing for partnership. He's longing for you to engage him in prayer, to make your request known. When you pray, when we pray, it's divine communication. You are talking when Nikolai's up here and we're joining him in prayer and we're praying for Israel, you are talking to the God of creation, the God that upholds all things by the power of his word, the God that spoke and brought all things into creation. And somehow, some way, he ties his activity to your prayers. 
He longs to partner with you. And there are things that are not happening because you're not asking. That's a mystery because he can do whatever he wants and he will do whatever he wants. And yet he longs to partner with you in prayer. Our prayers are divine communication with the very God of creation. They're not just encouraging or sympathetic sayings that we say to encourage each other, guys. This, this is divine communication. You're talking to God. And he is moved by your prayers. He acts when we pray in faith. He loves to partner with us. And there's this issue of thanksgiving. With all prayers, supplication, and thanksgiving. Thanksgiving's important because it guards us against whining. It guards us against a complaining spirit before God. It keeps, keeps us with our requests being known, but not whining and complaining. We really can, this is the promise for us as Christians, we really can be anxious for nothing, pray about everything, and thankful for everything. Verse 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It isn't, it isn't that it's senseless, and therefore impossible to understand. Peace of God, will, which surpasses your understanding, will guard your hearts. It's not, not that it's impossible to understand. It's impossible. It's beyond the abilities of understanding to explain. Therefore, it must be experienced. I think that's the point here. This type of understanding... The peace of God, which surpasses your understanding, it can't just be dealt with here in reasoned. It must be experienced. This is what it looks like to live in that tension of prayer. Verse 8, and this is, I think, where this whole thing lands. Finally, Paul says, summing it all up, to put it all together, Brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worth praise, think about those things. Think about those things. So much of the Christian life comes to where we put the power of our mind. Where are we focusing? What is consuming your thought life? What overwhelms the way you think and becomes patterns and habits and addictions? Is it the news cycle? Or is it whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable? Think about those things, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. Romans 12, 2 says that we're being transformed by the renewing of our mind. 2 Corinthians 10 speaks of the importance of casting down arguments every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing everything, every thought into captivity, into obedience of Christ. What you choose to meditate on, what you choose to think about matters. Where you let your mind wander matters.
what Paul describes here, these, these lists here, whatever's pure, lovely, commendable, excellent. What he's describing here is a practical way. This is a very tangible thing for you to do, for you and I to do, to bring our thoughts into captivity, into obedience of Christ. It enables joy in the midst of trials and hardships. This is what enables Paul to sing over and over again in the midst of hard times. It's the same thing that we looked at last week. Remember we read Colossians 3. If then... You have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of, of God. Set your mind on things that are above. Set your mind on things that are above. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith, as the author of Hebrews says. But it's not just the mind. Going back to Philippians, verse 9. It's not just a mental activity. Verse 9, what you have learned, what you have received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, Paul says. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Did you know that your faith is to be practiced? like an instrument or like a sport. There's a practice to this, what you have seen from Paul, what you've learned from Paul, what you've received in your journey of discipleship. Practice these things. Put them into practice. This is the way of Jesus. It's to be practiced. It's to be walked out intentionally. Practicing the way of Jesus. It's, it's the... This is what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus, making disciples. You're practicing his ways, and you're modeling for others what it looks like to practice the ways of Jesus. Two sides of a coin. Think this way, practice these things. I think that's the crux of Paul's encouragement to this church that he loved so much. The church that when he remembered was only joy and thanksgiving. And the essence of what he would say to them, I think what he's saying for us, you and I, think this way. Take every thought captive. Shift your perspective to an eternal perspective. Whatever is lovely, whatever is I'm going to read it again. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just and pure and lovely, whatever is commendable, anything excellent, anything worthy of praise, think about those things. Shift your perspective and then practice the way of Jesus. Practice the way of Jesus. Like an athlete would practice his sport. Or like a musician would practice his instrument. Practice these things. Let's pray together. God, I thank you That in this grand story of your church being planted, your church being formed, that we have the privilege of peeking in behind the scenes and seeing the Apostle Paul writing to this church that he loved. God, I thank you for these letters and these stories, the, the wealth of the scripture and how it forms us and shapes us. God, we are open to being shaped. God, we do pray that you would take captive every high and lofty thought, any thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of Jesus, 
any thought that stands in opposition to the way of Jesus, we take that thought captive. We bring it into submission to Jesus. And we fix our eyes on you. Jesus, we set our eyes on the eternal reality that you are exalted, that you are seated at the right hand of the Father, that you forever live to make intercession on our behalf, that you care deeply about the inner workings of our life and that you are moved to action when we pray, that you respond when we ask. God, give us a perspective way beyond the situation that's in front of us. Remind us of a reality that's beyond our own, of a citizenship that we possess that is not of this kingdom, not of this world. Jesus, we love you and we bless you. Amen.